All right, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, faithful and true, we are thrilled to be at the beginning of another Lord's Day. We are so grateful for uh, your work of salvation in our lives, freeing us to serve you and to seek you and to fellowship together as you always intended us to do. And we thank you for Sunday school and we thank you for the prophets and we pray that uh, you'd bless our studies this hour for, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, John Shine and I had an adventure at the end of Sunday school last week. Uh, we went to erase the marker board, and it didn't erase. I had written with a permanent marker. And we had visions of decades of Sunday school taught at Carlisle Reformed Presbyterian Church with Manasseh, 697 to 641 on the marker board. Think of the applications to the Sunday school on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sunday school on covenant theology, the Sunday school on eschatology, on missions. Manasseh. Well, thank the Lord for Google. We learned that if you write over permanent marker with dry erase marker, dry erase marker works as a solvent. And John Hope is laughing because he knows about this by hard experience. Um, Well, thinking back to last week, let's begin with a quiz. Periodically, all summer, I'm going to see how much you remember. My goal, Lord willing, is to make the book of Jeremiah less daunting, to give us practical tips, to seek practical tips to get more from our reading of Jeremiah, this book, and also the other prophets. And I suggested last week that it helps to have a list in your head of the last five kings of Judah. And that's because frequently, especially between chapters 20 and about somewhere in the 40s, frequently Jeremiah will refer to the reigns of kings. And because so much of the book of Jeremiah is biographical, the story of his life can come alive in your imagination if you can keep track of the chronology. So, raise your hand if you think you can name the last five kings of Judah in order. The last five kings of Judah in order. Can I cheat? You may not cheat. No cheating. Okay. You're gonna go. You're gonna go back and your offer to. Well, let me think here, because I, 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 you did give me a, a pattern. I have to remember it for a second. Paul Rundle's cheating. So. <laughs> okay. So it's um. So Jehoiakim, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. Okay, those are the last four. Four? Not quite the oh, right order. You said five. The first of the five would be Josiah. Is, is Josiah. Okay. Then 
Remember my mnemonic device? I mean, how could you forget it? It's like scarred in your memory. So what you do is you picture a political cartoon of Kim Jong-un, the tyrant of North Korea. I bet most of you have seen a political cartoon of Kim Jong-un. And when you see that picture, what do you ask yourself? Has Kim a chin? So you start with the good king, Josiah, then Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then how can you remember that Zedekiah comes last? The last letter of the alphabet. Thank you. Now, as I like to say in my classroom, an A for the day, if you know the length of their reigns, Josiah reigned 31 years. How long did Jehoahaz reign? Three months. Three months. How long did Jehoiakim reign? 11 years. 11 years. How long did Jehoiachin reign? Three months. Three months. How long did Zedekiah reign? 11 years. 11 years. You can remember that. You might forget how long Josiah reigned. I mean, 31. I have no idea how long to, how I can remember that. But three months, 11 years. Three months, 11 years. It's almost like providentially it was designed to make it easy to remember. And obviously, it's the three kings who reigned a long time who matter most. Josiah, the reformer. Jehoiakim, the despot. Zedekiah, the puppet. Those are the three that, if you, if you forget Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, Chin, if you can remember Josiah and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, they're going to be referenced dozens of times in the book of Jeremiah. Now, another tip I gave, and, um, and this is where some of you decided that I was not sincere when I claimed that I wasn't going to let this class get academic. I suggested that it helps to have a date or two in your head. And if you're skeptical of that, I get it. Uh, history class was traumatic for some of us. And, but the reason it's helpful is because if you use a, a, a study Bible at all, those footnotes are going to reference dates. So if you just have one or two in your head, and you can know, oh, the study Bible says this number, well, that comes before the date I memorized it helps you to keep track of the order of things. And again, the order of things matters because the book of Jeremiah is not laid out chronologically. It's like a scrapbook that the binding went out on and it fell on the floor. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it's a God-ordained order. I'm not saying it's random, but it's not chronological. But so much of the book is biographical that it helps to try to keep track of the order of events in his life. So, I think the best date to memorize, if you memorize only one, is the date of the fall of Jerusalem. It's one of the most important events in the Bible, hands down. When God's covenant curses came down on his people, defining moment in the history of God's plan of salvation. Does anybody remember what year... Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Anybody remember? 
Yeah, some books it'll say 587, some will say 586. And, uh, but uh, it, we actually know the date in the calendar year from the Babylonian calendar. It's the Ides of March of all dates. March 15th or maybe the 16th. And uh, I always say 587, although I've seen 586, because um, that's what I see in most of the books. And once you remember that, there's another date that's really easy to remember. Because Jeremiah's call that we studied last week happened 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem. Now, the dates go backwards B.C., so that's what gives me a migraine. So you're going to add 40 to 587, not subtract. What year is 40 years before 587? 627. And if you, know, if you can learn a second date, that would be the one to learn. This is when Jeremiah's ministry began. And this is that dreadful, dreadful year when it all culminates with the um, destruction of the city of David. You can just imagine how traumatic that was for God's people. Okay. End of quiz. By the way, um, if you... Oh, I, t- I stole your handout. I'm so sorry. Is there anybody else who didn't get a handout last week? Paul will give you one. Thanks. All right, so there's actually a lot of wonderful diversity and richness in the writing prophets. Uh, Nevertheless, part of why we often feel intimidated in our personal reading of the Bible when we come to the prophets is that they seem to cover the same material over and over again at great length. The prophets tend to uh, have God charging us with sin. God complaining about our sin. Not in a sinful way, obviously. In a righteous way. The prophets tend to warn us against judgment. The prophets tend to invite us to repent. And the prophets tend to promise the Messiah or, or comfort for the remnant. Sin, warning, invitation, promise. There are other things, but those are the four big topics The reason the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, not Jeremiah, the reason the first chapter of the book of Isaiah is the perfect introduction to the book of Isaiah is because it gives us substantial instances of all four of those things. 
So you read the first chapter of Isaiah, and it's like you've read a summary of the whole book. Well, Jeremiah does something similar. After the call of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 1, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, we get really clear instances of God charging his people with sin. Instances of God calling his people to repent. Instances of God warning against judgment. Not a lot of promise. That'll come later. <laughs> and, as it's, and, and though there are instances of all three of those things in each of the chapters, they come at us in, in quick alternation. Nevertheless, chapter 2 tends to focus on God charging his people with sin. Chapter 3 tends to focus on God inviting his people to repent and to return, to come back. Come back home. And chapter 4 focuses largely on judgment. So, remember this is a survey of the book of Jeremiah. We are not going to talk about every chapter of this book. We won't have time, even though we have the whole summer. Remember, it's the longest book in the Bible. And if you weren't here last week, it really is. See me after class and I'll explain how that could be. Uh, This will be a great way to get started. Today we're going to talk Chapters 2 and 3, sin and repentance. And next week we'll talk about judgment. So let's set the stage. And if you are a a history kind of person, you might want to get out that timeline so you you can see what we're talking about here. We know from chapter 3, verse 6, that this is early in Jeremiah's ministry. These chapters are written during the reign of King Josiah. And because you have the last five kings of Judah in your head, you know what that means. The boy King Josiah had begun to seek the Lord in his teens. And at the age of 20, he began to purge his country of idolatry. One year later, in 627, what happens? That other boy born at the end of Manasseh's reign is called to be a prophet by God, Jeremiah. Jeremiah begins his long career. Now, Josiah brought his reforms throughout the land. He even brought them to the north, all the way up to Naphtali, before turning his attention to the temple in 622. Remember, years go backwards, dates go backwards in the years B.C. And what happened as they were uh, renovating the temple? Remember this from when we were boys and girls in Sunday school? They discovered something. I remember as a boy being astounded by this. How do you discover the Bible? But they did. They discovered the book of the law. The Mosaic law. For Jeremiah, this discovery was to have momentous effects on his life. After a national renewal of the covenant, 
based on the rediscovered book of the law, Jeremiah was sent out on a preaching tour. We read about this in Jeremiah chapter 11. A tour of the cities of Judah, a tour of the streets of Jerusalem to bring the challenge of it home to his nation. And chapters 2 through 4, what we're studying today and next week, are examples of what he preached. Sin, repentance, judgment. You'll notice in chapter 2, verse 36, for example, that when referring to foreign powers that constitute a threat, Jeremiah names Assyria and Egypt, not Babylon. That's because they don't know yet that Babylon is the ultimate threat, or they would if they'd read Isaiah. Uh, Assyria and Egypt felt like the big threats. It's not until Jeremiah chapter 20 that Babylon gets named by Jeremiah. So that's an indication of how early this is. Okay, now, as you look, is everyone open, their Bibles open to chapters 2 and 3? Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3. Notice that most of it is poetry. It should be laid out on the page just as poetry would be laid out if you were reading a, uh, an anthology of poetry or reading Shakespeare. And actually, you know from your personal reading of the Bible that most of the prophets wrote poetry most of the time. I, I have no idea what the proportions are, but maybe, maybe three quarters of, of Isaiah through Malachi is poetry. Maybe one quarter is prose. I could be wrong, but something like that. Why was so much of what the prophets wrote poetry? Have you ever thought about that? As Jeremiah says in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I don't know about you, but I need all the help I can get to conceptualize just how foolish sin is, just how vile sin is. I need all the help I can get to see how beautiful repentance is, how happy repentance is. I need all the help I can get to see, to imagine, to conceptualize how terrifying judgment is. Now, I have nothing against systematic theology. I love systematic theology, but, but clinically precise prose and, and propositional language and abstractions, they have their place, but they're so easy for me to handle up here in a purely cognitive way. But metaphor, pictures, imagery, parables, ideas structured in an interesting way, wordplay, these things reach my heart because they engage my imagination and pierce my defenses. That's how they get to my heart. 
more than anything else this summer, I'm hoping that we can see how helpful, how necessary poetry is in the Bible. And that, I think, can bring your personal reading of the prophets to life. So, chapter 2. The first image is of a marriage. The scholars think it's quite likely Jeremiah knew the book of Hosea. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then you tell me how many ways, in how many ways is it fitting to think of God as a husband and his people as a bride? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. So how is God like a husband? And how is his people like a bride? From, from this text. I'm going to step back from the text for a moment. If we look at the betrothal process within the Old Testament time, uh, part of that was going to construct your home, usually off of your father's home. And you could not go and get married until your father said it was good enough. Usually it would take about a year. In that process, part of the tradition was to leave with your bride-to-be a, a letter or, or something written to explain why you have chosen her and to explain to her why you are devoted to her. And you can see some of that going on here. Yeah. God is... God cherishes his bride. Verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, 
the first fruits of his harvest. Do you know what first fruits are? We read about that in the Mosaic Law. To whom did the first fruits belong? To God. What else does God do here that's like a husband? He possesses and cherishes his people. Verse 3, what else does he do? What's he doing in verse... Go ahead. Julia. Um, He protects, and that's the second part of verse 3. All who ate of it incurred guilt. I'm assuming that means that if people attacked Israel, that he defended them. Absolutely. God defends his bride. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them. So he, he cherished his bride. He protected his bride. What's he doing at the end of verse 2? If, if the bride is following the husband, then the husband is leading. Look at verse 7. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. What's the husband doing there? Providing. And Israel's like a bride. You see her devotion, at least at first. She loves him so much, she'll go anywhere. Um, in... Uh... I guess verse 2 at the end. It says, in the land not sown. Mm-hmm. And I, I would p- picture that as a virgin. Sure. Yep. Or, or the, the, the deserts where they wandered, Israel wandered for, for 40 years. All right. So, we see the picture there, but now something goes wrong. Very wrong. Look in verse 6. We read, They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? Not only does she no longer follow her husband, she doesn't even care to learn where he is. Something has gone very wrong. Let me read through verse 13. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. There we see a common theme in Jeremiah where he mentions kings, prophets, priests, these mediators between God and his people. Shepherds are often a code in Jeremiah for kings. We'll talk more about that next month. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. If you have a study Bible, you'll see that's a play on words, making fun of the name of the god Baal. Went after Baal, went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. 
For cross the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Well, what has gone wrong? Look at verse 9. Therefore I still contend with you. That Hebrew word there, translated contend, is more often than not a legal term. When you make an argument before the judges, before the elders in the gate. For example, in Isaiah chapter 1, a chapter I referenced at the beginning of class, there's a verse that talks about pleading the widow's cause. Well, there, the verb translated plead is the same word here translated contend. The idea is someone is making his case. God is making his case against his wife. God is filing for divorce, which is a a shocking thing for me to say, and I probably won't be invited back next week, but that's what he's doing here. Or at least he has good cause to. He's bringing charges against his wife. How can he do that? God hates divorce. Well, the crime is enormous. This is not a case of irreconcilable differences. This is a righteous divorce if God follows through with it. This is not a no-fault divorce. There is no parallel. Look at verses 10 and 11. Cross to the coasts of Cyprus. Go as far west as you can go. Send to Kedar. Go as far east as you can send and examine with care. Has there ever been such a thing? Has a nation ever changed its gods? Ask your history teacher. Ask your history professor. Do nations change their gods? It's an exceedingly rare thing. But my people have. They change their glory, Yahweh, for that which does not profit, which is making fun of the name Baal. In fact, these legal proceedings are so serious that not any old witnesses will do. Look at the witnesses that God invokes in verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked, be utterly desolate. And then comes this little parable, this unforgettable, vivid parable in verse 13 that I read. My people have committed two evils. 
Now remember, this is a desert culture. Water is a big deal. For everybody hearing this poem, water is a matter of life and death every day of their lives. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what's the first sin? The first sin is abandoning God. That's bad enough. (laughs) The second sin is chasing after false gods. God is compared to a source of living water. In other words, a spring, which is the best thing you can have in the Mideast. This is where cities are built. And chasing after the false gods is likened to building a faulty cistern. You know what a cistern is? They were these, uh, these holding tanks underground that rainwater would be channeled into, and during a drought, you'd have that water. It'd probably be dirty, stagnant, but during a drought, you'll take dirty, stagnant water. But would you abandon a cool mountain spring for that dirty, stagnant water? Or worse yet, how about if the cistern didn't even work? And when you most needed the water, that's when it failed because it was cracked. That's what chasing after my gods is like, my false gods. You see how poetry works? Can that not help you in the day of temptation resist sin? Thinking of that picture? Look back at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me? there's, there's, There's no case the defense can make. There's no case the, the accused wife can make. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness, broken cisterns, worthlessness, and became worthless? Chasing after the false gods makes us like them. Worthless. So worthless that we read this, beginning in verse 20. I'm going to read verses 20 to 25. Talk about worthlessness. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. Right? God freed them, liberated them. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. This is when we're glad the kids are in another Sunday school class. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? 
None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they'll find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. In other words, stop chasing after the gods until you're thirsty, until you're barefoot. But you said, it's hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Chasing after worthlessness makes us worthless. The prophets are not polite. They're not rated G. There is no tasteful, refined way to describe adultery, spiritual adultery. And the images are offensive and sometimes obscene because idolatry is obscene. You see how the one who chases after idols is like an animal, enslaved to impulses, like a donkey in heat, like an addict who doesn't dispute that he's doing something wrong. He just says, I can't do any different. It's hopeless, and after them I will go. Perhaps the most heart-wrenching picture comes in verse 32. Verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Are you, have you been a wife? Wives. What mental state could make you forget what you wore on your wedding day? Like dementia? What would it take? That's what's going on here. That's what's happened to God's people. There's there's no way to make sense of what Israel has done. So what can be done about it? By God's grace, what's the remedy for this kind of destructive sin? Chapter 3, Repentance. But chapter 3 begins by acknowledging the obstacles. Reconciliation is not going to be easy. It's problematic. Verse 1, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? There are divorces that can't be undone, namely when one of the spouses gets remarried, right? Because you can't have polygamy. Divorce can be irreversible. The first husband cannot have what is another man's. But there are other obstacles to reconciliation. 
Let me keep reading here. Um, Let me skip to verse 4. Have you not just now called to me, my father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. What's another obstacle to reconciliation when people come and apologize? The person here who calls out to his father and calls him his friend and asks if he'll be angry forever, what's the problem here? It's not sincere. A lot of so-called repentance is not sincere. It's, it's hypocritical. Let me keep reading. Verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? Remember, that's the northern kingdom, which fell back in 722 to Assyria. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north. We'll pause there. Judah saw, Judah saw what happened to the northern kingdom a hundred years before. When the Lord figuratively divorced her, it was destroyed by the Assyrians. And its people were completely dispersed. Yet Judah, says verse 10, still did not return with her whole heart, but in pretense. Insincerity, as Julia said. The Lord here says that the northern kingdom was less wicked than the southern kingdom. Because Judah had the benefit of seeing what happened to Israel for her unfaithfulness. And it made no difference. Judah was unfaithful and hypocritical about it. She was treacherous, verse 11. It must have been a shocking comparison for people used to thinking of the northern kingdom as being worse than themselves. Sometimes it takes a shock to wake people out of their hypocrisy. So, the prospects of reconciliation don't look good. God had every reason to divorce his people. It would have been a righteous divorce. They had been promiscuous, shameless, and treacherous. So, verse 12 comes as a surprise. This is what Jehovah has Jeremiah proclaim to the north. Verse 12, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. 
Apparently, reconciliation wasn't impossible. Remember the book of Hosea? Hosea did not divorce Gomer. Do you have a right to? Hosea bought her back at a price and insisted that she not play the whore. This is what God does for his people through the covenant of grace. He buys us back through the blood of Christ and effectually calls us by his word and spirit to a life of faithfulness. God invites the northern Israelites who have been in exile for more than a century to repent. The invitation is placed in the mouth of a southern prophet working in the southern kingdom with the clear implication being that the southern kingdom is meant to overhear the call and awaken to a desire for something similar. It's God's doing. He calls, verse 12. He brings, verse 14. Our return is a response to grace. It involves admitting the truth, verse 13. Shamelessness and insincerity must end. Let me read these verses, 12, 13, 14. Go and proclaim these words toward the, toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And it results in blessing. Let me keep reading. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil hearts. Turns out there's promise of comfort for the remnant after all here in chapter 3. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. As we read through the rest of the chapter, we have a model of what it looks like to return to the Lord. Let me me keep reading here. And... um, See how many ways you can find that these verses teach us about what true repentance is and what true repentance looks like. I'll skip to verse 22. Verse 22, return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. 
Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly, the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So what do truly repentant people do? as modeled in this text. Well, if Thomas Watson were here, Oh, that'd be wonderful. He would say, sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame of sin, hatred of sin, and turning from sin. We should all memorize that before Deckard leaves. <laughs> that, would, that would be the best farewell gift you could give him. Most of that is right here in this text. You see that? The truly repentant person recognizes who God is. Verse 22, for you are the Lord our God. And that phrase comes back three more times. It recognizes how delusory, uh, uh, how... how, how um, Crazy and wasteful sin is. Look at verse 24. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored. You know the shameful thing that you've seen in your own life? Remember how destructive it was? It humbles itself, true repentance. My favorite verse in these chapters is chapter 4, verse 4. No, actually, what am I looking for here? Yeah, the end of verse 3. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. There's an image for you. Let me read to you a, a little paragraph from a sermon by Philip Ryken. Most Christians are content with the size of their present obedience to God. That obedience is about the size of a hanging basket, or maybe a window box, or perhaps even a small garden plot in the city. 
But God wants his people to break new ground in their obedience. In other words, God wants you to do more than just tend the little garden you keep planting year after year. He wants you to do some real farming. It's time to put away your hoe and your shovel, get the John Deere out of the barn, hitch up the plow, go out in the fields, and break up the rocky soil of your heart. And then we see how circumcision was a physical picture of a spiritual reality, just like baptism. Well, I hope you can see how prophetic poetry helps us to recognize the realities, the existential realities of sin and repentance. The images God gives us, the pictures God gives us of these things poetically in this book are powerful. I'm haunted by the verse we read. They, there will come a time when they will no more, no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It won't even come to mind. They will not remake it. When Babylon destroys the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, it's okay because the time will come when you'll no longer need it. What, what was the Ark of the Covenant for? What did it do? It was a picture of God's presence with his people. But a day's coming when God will be so present with his people that you won't even need that picture. This picture of repentance being like cultivating the soil, breaking up fallow ground, a destructive process that leaves the earth clean and fertile and ready for a fresh start, ready for life. How can you forget that picture? Or verse 24, the shameful thing that has devoured all for which our fathers labored. God's call to repentance is sincere. It's everywhere in Scripture. But, and these words echo in my head, may they echo in all our heads, but if you return, the Lord says in chapter 4, verse 1, to me, you should return. Would you take your hymnal and let's sing together number 472. 472. Let's stand.
Lord, O God, we do thank you for Jesus and his righteousness in his life and his uh, righteousness at his death imputed to us so that we can come to you uh, full of regret for what we've done and full of trust and hope in Christ's work and find life, everlasting life. We pray, Lord, that the lessons of Jeremiah 2 and 3 would have their full effect in our hearts and that henceforth we would be quicker to acknowledge our sin, to turn from it, and to put our trust in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.